Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us for the show today. We have obviously a lot to talk about. But before we get started, the first thing I'd like to do is to uh, thank Virginia Prescott, who uh, filled in for me yesterday. I had a longstanding appointment that I couldn't miss. But, you know, it, it struck me after listening to the show that on a day when the conversation uh, was mostly around uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of the strongest, smartest fighters uh, that American history will remember. It was probably fortuitous that Virginia Prescott was here, a smart, strong uh, woman like Virginia leading that conversation. And I'm very grateful that uh, she did uh, do that. Um, All right, let's get started. We got, as I said, a lot to talk about. It's Tuesday. Tamar Hallerman is with me. She's senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We're going to talk in a minute, Tamar, about the brand new poll that the AJC just released. And why don't we take advantage of the fact that we have a large listening audience out there? You've got got um, an assignment. You've got to start finding some undecided voters to talk to, right? Yeah, I'm looking to talk to women who live in the suburbs who either are undecided or kind of reluctantly going for Biden or reluctantly going for Trump. So I'd love to talk to you. Um, my na- you know, my, my email is out there if you Google me, Tamar Hallerman from the AJC, and I'd love to speak with you sometime today or tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks anyway, for letting me get my plug in. Reporting tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, better than standing in the parking lots of Kroger's and Publix, just grabbing people as they come by. So we hope that works pretty well for you. Um, we're joined today by Professor Fred Smith, Professor of Constitutional Law at Emory University. And Fred, I'm especially glad to have you here today because we will, at some point in the show, be talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, but. You, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know that anyone um, has had quite the experience you have had with her uh, in our listening audience, that's for sure. When you clerked for Justice Sonia Sotomayor, you got a chance to meet Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You've got to tell us about that, Fred. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, It was one of the greatest honors uh, of that particular year. Oh, do you, would you like That's me to? Oh, yeah, sure. So, uh, all of the all of the the various clerks for uh, the the justices eat. Um, every justice has lunch or tea with the with all of the various clerks from all of the various uh, chambers, um, and uh, the tea with her, um, I think, was most memorable because you could feel how much reverence all of us had. Um, you know, like the reverence for the institution itself never went away, but to be candid, you sort of got used to seeing all of the justices all the time, except for her. <laughs> um, and uh, and she, the way that she spoke, uh, it was very soft-spoken, but there was uh, uh, there was such a passion, um, and there was a, a fondness and collegiality um, by which she ta- with which she talked about her colleagues, um, and uh, we were able to ask her a lot of questions about being a lawyer, 
in the 1970s and in the 1960s and being a trailblazer. And I think that's where that reverence came from, um, is that she was the only justice on the court at that particular time and one of the only justices uh, in, in recent memory who we would be talking about in constitutional law classes and we would be talking about uh, in American history classes, even if they never served on the court. Uh, and so it was an absolute honor uh, to have a chance to, to talk about her career with her. What a what a thrill. What a thrill. Brian Robinson is with us today. He um, was uh, Nathan Deals, Governor Nathan Deals, communications director during the first term of Governor Deals tenure um, and has gone on to form his own communications firm, Robinson Republic, um, and has represented a couple of candidates in the uh, uh, election cycle. But right now, I don't think you're um, working with anybody, are you, Brian? You're you're through with the 2020 cycle, right? No, no, I'm in the thick of it. I'm working. Oh no, um, you really? Yeah, I'm working on Karen Handel's race, man. One of the highest profile house oh, races here in the country. I, of course you are. I apologize. I completely no. forgot. That's interesting. I'm at, I'm going to ask you about that uh, as we uh, go on in the show today, um, even though we admit you have a very strong preference in that yeah, race, given what you're doing. Yeah. But, but it'll still – yeah, no, but that's okay. It'll be perfectly fine. Theron Johnson <laughs> is with us today. And by the way, he'll keep, he'll keep you honest, Brian. No need to worry yeah. about that. Theron, of course, uh, uh, is the uh, founder and uh, uh, head of Paramount Consulting – which is a political consulting firm. But if, uh, these days, most important of all, Theron, I think, is that you are a senior advisor for the Biden campaign in Georgia and and maybe most important of all, the father of now a 10-week-old little mm-hmm. baby boy who you told us before the show went on got you up at 3 o'clock this morning, and yet here you are, Theron. You're, you're great. Well, anything for you, for you, Bill, because, you know, you gave me my start in radio, but um, honored to be on with everyone. But I want to say for all the listeners in Athens, Georgia, uh, I'm extremely honored to be the second most popular person on the radio today behind Fred Smith Jr., who, Bill, when I go to Athens, people ask me two questions. One, how's your mom? And then two, do you know Fred Smith Jr.? So it's an honor to be on with uh, Professor Smith this morning. Okay, we have a lot that we have to cover today, but I think you're going to have to explain a little to our listeners why Fred Smith Jr. and his father were such iconic figures in Athens. Just real quick. Well, you know, Fred Smith Sr. um, really paved the way for so many of us. Um, You know, there are people like Michael Thurman who oftentimes say that his political career would not be possible if it wasn't for uh, Fred Smith Sr. And and then I have heard of Fred Smith Jr. before I even met him by good friends like uh, Erica Smith, who's also from Athens, who went to Harvard, and just really proud of all the great work that Fred Smith Jr. is doing. And I want to make a bold prediction. I think his name will be on the ballot within the next four years for something. Uh, But we are both Athens boys and uh, really proud of the work that him and his family is doing. All right. Well, I'm glad, very glad to have you both on the show uh, together, uh, as I am, of course, you, Brian, and you, Tamar. Tamar, uh, let's talk about the poll. Uh, The AJC dropped a big one uh, overnight last night, and it's on the front page of this morning's uh, Dead Tree edition of the newspaper. Um, And let's uh, start looking at the races and and bring the panel in. 
uh, before we move on to some conversation about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the fight over her replacement on the court. Uh, so, tomorrow, the top line on the presidential race, the AJC poll conducted by University of Georgia, more than 1,000 participants. Um, I Registered voters or likely voters tomorrow, do you know? Um, let me figure that out. I think it's likely voters, yeah. Well, likely we'll come. Voters. Yeah, good, good, good. Okay. Uh, Trump and Biden basically tied, right? Yep, 47% apiece. About 1% of likely voters in Georgia backing libertarian candidate Joe Jorgensen, and only about 4% of likely voters are undecided, um, which shows just how polarized and, and just how kind of set the races are at this point. And, and the other two kind of top line results from this poll show that the other two U.S., you know, the other two marquee races in Georgia, the, the twin U.S. Senate races, are also too close to call between David Perdue and John Ossoff and then the special election to, to uh, uh, for Kelly Loeffler's seat. Uh, nobody, uh, you know, Kelly Loeffler with 24 percent, Doug Collins and, and Raphael Warnock with about 20 percent. So all of them are too close to call and um, coming down to the wire here in the last couple of weeks. So, Theron, uh, those are the basic top lines. But as you start drilling down into the crosstabs, there's some interesting information. Uh, for instance, Theron, the AJC found that uh, Biden has the support of 30 percent of the white voters uh, surveyed. Uh, that's considerably better than Hillary Clinton did in uh, the last election in 2016 and is cause for some hope for the Biden campaign's ability to, to uh, uh, win, win the state. Yes. You know, Bill, we get paid, and I don't get paid as much as Brian, but we get paid to go on the campaigns and, you know, really make sort of complicated issues into very uh, clear and sort of, um, you know, sort of solvable. Uh, with you No, know, but basically we provide some consultation to our candidates to let them know that there is a pathway to victory. On this one, you really don't have to overthink it. The, the, the polling is clearly showing me one thing, Bill, and that is, is that if people in Georgia – turn out and vote. And if we're at 30% with white voters right now, and we do what we've traditionally done in Georgia with African-American voters, and particularly African-American women, then Biden wins Georgia. And so not to complicate this for our listeners, it's really simple. If people feel that they're uh, able to access their voting machines properly, that their votes will be counted, and the votes will be secure. And if this model stands, then not only will Joe Biden be the 46th president of the United States of America, Georgia will be blue, and it will be blue for a long time. You know, Brian, uh, Theron makes an interesting point. It has long been said that Georgia is more blue than red if people actually turn out and vote, and that one of the Democrats' most significant problems in this state is that their voters across uh, racial lines, across uh, uh, economic lines, whatever, don't turn out the way Republicans do. What do you say about that and how that fits into this poll and what Theron just said? I think there's a lot of truth in that. Some Theron and I actually have discussed for years now. And, you know, I'm a little leery of a 30 percent of, of white voters. Uh, it, it sounds reasonable to an uninformed person that that, that would be the number, but the 2016 number was around 21% for Hillary Clinton. That was pretty good, around 20% for Roy Barnes in 2010, for Jason Carter in 2014. 
So that's a pretty big uh, jump in a short amount of time. And if that has happened, you're talking about a fairly significant realignment of the electorate in a really short period of time. I'm not saying that's not possible. I'm just saying that my eyebrows are slightly raised uh, about that number. I thought it was also interesting that black voters were at 85% for Biden, 8% undecided. Um, so you got to think, at least, I think Darren will back me up on this, I think uh, at least 5 to 7 or 8% of that will shift over to Biden, undecided will shift over to Biden to get them up over 90%, which was, again, what you traditionally would see. So there's still some shaking out to do in this poll, and those are small numbers, but when it's essentially tied within the margin of error, small numbers are what decides this. And I look forward to getting to more into the Senate race in a minute. Okay, we will. I, but I want to get Fred in, and then I want to get uh, everybody back in. I know Tamar and, Th- and Theron want to jump in, too. Uh, Fred, a couple questions uh, for you, basically. Um, w- one of them is, it's interesting, the uh, Biden campaign, um, we're talking now about white voters and uh, the value of the white vote for Joe Biden in this state. But it's interesting, the Biden campaign has just dropped a, a fleet of uh, TV spots that are aimed at African-American men. Um, And that's important because while African-American women turn out in significant numbers to vote for Democrats, the Biden campaign is also looking seriously at how it can increase its margins with uh, black men as well, right? Yes. I mean, that's actually looking at the crosstabs. That's what strikes me the most um, is that although we're talking about undecided white voters in this particular poll, there's only 2.4% of them, uh, and there's 8.3% of undecided black voters. Uh, and, so, uh, and so that w- it makes sense to me then that, uh, that at least some of the focus is going to be um, kind of um, bringing the base home, so to speak, um, uh, at this particular juncture. I want to piggyback off what Brian said. We're talking about how the poll shows that that perhaps Biden is winning a larger share of white voters. Um, that may be true. That may not be true. But let's think about how you know why that that shift might have happened if it's indeed true. Um, and this summer, we've of course seen the the wave of, of protests following the death of George Floyd over over racial justice. And that's something we actually polled uh, with the University of Georgia, and we found that a majority of voters, about fifty seven percent in Georgia, say they. Support they support the protests, and that includes about a quarter of Republicans and 60% of Democrats. Uh, So perhaps that was a factor that helped swing some of these white voters. Um, And I'd be curious what Theron and and Brian have to say about that, too. Yeah, yeah, Tamar, I was going to say that as well, because if you really look at it, and and Brian has been one of the few Republicans that have been very honest about this, and that is that if you really look at where President Trump's disapproval rating is in Georgia. That's another point that I want to make. I mean, it's probably as high as it's been in a while. But also, Bill, let's not forget, Stacey Abrams got 27% of the white vote statewide uh, in 2018, roughly. And so let's just say that based on pure increase of turnout, you got to think that if Joe Biden can, he's going to get at least 27% of the, of the white vote because that's what Abrams got. If he can get upwards to 29, 30, 31, then, then game over. And then the other thing is, uh, Bill, I want to echo something that CEO Michael Thurman said on your show, I think, a week or so ago. This race is going to come down to a lot of the different things. But as Tamar just pointed out, I believe 
college-educated, disaffected suburban women voters are going to be the ones that are going to decide this race in Georgia. And I believe that based on all of the things that we can talk about for days that Donald Trump has done and has said to turn off these particular voters, that's going to be the difference maker in Georgia. Brian, before we turn to the Senate races, which are important for us to discuss, um, you know, Tamar points out, the, and, and this is true in polling across the country in many states, the percentage of undecided voters in the presidential race is minuscule, minuscule. And, and that's going to lead, after we talk about the Senate candidates, to another question I want to pose to you all, which is, if that's the case, why are we so worried about the impact of a Supreme Court fight might have on the presidential election. And we'll, we'll, put, we'll park that for the, for the moment. But what do you, if there are so few people undecided, what should that tell us about the six weeks between now and the election, Brian? That the campaign will be painted in apocalyptic tones because this is not a persuasion <laughs> election. There's no one to persuade. You are for Trump or you are against him. I mean, and I, as I said on your show before, Bill, that goes up and down the ballot. Yeah, if you vote for the local dog catcher based on whether or not you like Trump or hate Trump. And so we are polarized along, uh, along those lines. So what we're having, instead of a persuasion election, is a turnout election. And so you're not going to see a whole lot that, you know, kind of gets to the middle to persuade people on an issue. It's more about scaring your voters to get them to show up to the polls, to get them to ask for that absentee ballot and turn it back in, which requires a lot of communication with your with your base of voters. Getting that this whole new step of the mail, that, that's a little more communication you got to do with people that you know that you can count on to vote for you. And so why the Supreme Court nominee matters, Bill, is that this will be a major driver of turnout. What worries me is Conservatives have long wanted to have this majority because, frankly, conservatives believe that when Republican presidents put conservatives on the court, uh, a, a decent percentage of those appointees become liberal or moderate over time, whereas if a Democrat puts the liberal on the court, they pretty much say liberal. I mean, it's <laughs> sunk in. You know, everybody's on that, that D.C. cocktail circuit, and it begins to make an impact. And the liberals are uh, a little bit uh, just bucked up by that. But so it'll be a turnout uh, driver. But Republicans, what concerns me is if Republicans get what they want on the Supreme Court before the election, it may mobilize Democrats and Republicans will feel fat and happy. That's my concern. I'm not saying Trump shouldn't put somebody on. I think he probably should. But uh, it could help the Democrats. And we're already seeing where it's helping Democratic Senate candidates raise money. All right, Fred, let's I'm Brian already kicked off the conversation, but let's talk just for a couple minutes about the Senate races. As uh, Tamar reported to us, Senate race number one has Purdue and Ossoff in what is virtually a dead heat. It's within the margin of error. Um, and and what's been fascinating, of course, to watch there, Fred, is how David Purdue in from who for for three plus years has uh, tied himself at the hip to President Trump. Uh, he is keeping his distance from President Trump as much as possible. He even waited to weigh in on the issue of timing over a, a replacement for Justice Ginsburg. So he's running 
to the extent possible, a Trump-free re-election campaign. Yes? To some extent, yes. I mean, compared to where he's been in the past few years. Um, but I think he's still running, uh, you know, a base or turnout sort of uh, uh, of a campaign. That is to say, he has articulated that he thinks that uh, that the Senate should vote this particular year on a nominee, which is the position um, of the administration. Um, whereas, you know, there's there's some other states, uh, you know, that's not position, say, of Susan Collins. And then there's uh, some senators who are not on the record at all. Um, um, and so that suggests that he does think that his path is by way of, uh, of turnout, which is consistent with everything we've said. The only other point I'll add, which I haven't heard, um, is in terms of the electorate, that after 2018, when Stacey Abrams ran, there's been 750,000 <laughs> new registered voters, uh, and she lost by 55 thousand votes. So when we're looking at these numbers and we're looking at these cross tabs, we're not looking at exactly the same electorate that existed even two years ago, let alone four. Theron, yeah, it, it strikes me that David, go ahead. Why did you make your point, Theron? No, go ahead. No. Okay. I was just going to say, it strikes me that, that David Perdue, who's polling in terms of approval ratings, have always, over the course of his tenure, been higher than President Trump in Georgia, than uh, even the governor in Georgia. The fact that he is in a virtual tie with his Democratic opponent, and he is, after all, an incumbent, is very bad news for Purdue and the Republican Party here. Yeah, I think the Purdue camp is, is worried. But back to what Fred just said, you really haven't seen Senator Perdue totally abandoning his allegiance to Trump. I mean, let's remind our listeners, he was the praiser-in-chief right. for President Trump in the beginning. What he's doing now is sort of showing us a confluence of, I'm still this conservative, and he's brought back the jean jacket, which ultimately reminds us of the campaign six years ago when he was this outsider. Well, now he's a Republican insider. And also the difference is, is that you see now that John Ossoff is really running a very, very aggressive campaign. He has the resources. He's staying on message. And I think that he's actually putting a lot of pressure on the Purdue camp. Lastly, I'll say is this. If you look at what Congresswoman Lucy McBath is doing to Karen Handel over in the 6th District, I mean, she is wrapping Donald Trump around Karen Handel's neck. I mean, she's not going to let her escape that. I predict within the next 40-plus days, you're going to either see the Ossoff campaign or some outside groups remind the uh, voters of Georgia how committed, how loyal uh, David Perdue was to this very unpopular president. I think for better or for worse for David Perdue and for John Ossoff, their fates on Election Day are very much going to be tied to the fates of Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And it's so hard for them to change the subject beyond that. And to a certain extent, I think you've seen, especially Ossoff kind of, uh, actually both of them, now that I think about it, kind of follow the, the lead of what the presidential campaigns are talking about. And so... Um, you know, you saw with, with David Perdue kind of following the guidance that McConnell set uh, when it came to talking about this, this Ginsburg seat, you know, keep your powder dry. Um, don't talk so much about timing because that's McConnell's decision more than anybody else. Uh, but he indicated he would support uh, whoever Donald Trump would, would put forward. And I think at this point, um, that's the move with his base. And um, it'll be really hard for, for either of them to kind of carve out any lane outside of what the presidential candidates are doing. 
Tomorrow, while the ball's in your court, uh, let's talk briefly about Senate race number two. Uh, you mentioned before, it's got uh, Kelly Leffler, who's uh, got the seat uh, by appointment right now at 24 percent. Doug Collins uh, is uh, quite close behind her, as is uh, Raphael Warnock. They're both at about 20 percent. A couple things about that. One, it indicates Raphael Warnock's TV uh, is working for him because it's the first time we've seen him pretty close to the two Republicans uh, in the race, but perhaps most important tomorrow, your polling suggests that 17% of voters are undecided when in the other races, uh, the presidential race, virtually no one is undecided. There's a lot of room for people to uh, grow or fall off the cliff in that race. 100%, especially since you do have Kelly Loeffler, Doug Collins, and Raphael Warnock pulling so close to each other. At this point, it's pretty clear we're not going to have an outright winner in November. This is going to go to a runoff in January, uh, but a lot of room for these candidates to... to um, grow their their support. A couple things. First of all, good news for Kelly Leffler in this poll in that it shows that she is building a slight lead after all of the, the money that she spent, uh, her and her allies, to kind of bolster her name, uh, which is good news for her. Uh, one other thing for Warnock, it, it's also good news for him in that he is finally starting to kind of pull ahead, get into that front pack with uh, with Donald or sorry Doug Collins and, and Kelly Leffler and kind of separate himself from the other Democrats it also puts even more pressure on on people like Matt Lieberman and um, and Ed Tarver to drop out especially now that uh, you know the Ginsburg seat is open and and there is an argument to make if Democrats can consolidate support around one candidate if somebody could potentially win outright in November unlikely but they could be seated in November and be a, a vote against uh, a Ginsburg. Uh, Trump nominee. Uh, Fred, I got to get to a break, but Tamara anticipated exactly the question I was going to ask you. What do you make of the notion that Democrats are going to try to uh, pressure uh, Matt Lieberman and Ed Tarver to leave the field and give it to Raphael Warnock on this offhand chance he could win outright and be seated before there's a vote on a nominee? It's an unlikely scenario, I guess, but you can understand why the Democrats would be looking at that possibility. Sure. It does strike me as unlikely, although, I mean, I'll note that no matter what happens, um, even if they were to so-called drop out, they'll still be on the ballot. Right. And so, um, you know, I think that the, the task for the Warnock campaign remains the same, which is to let people know about his record, his record on voting rights, his record on criminal justice, remind people uh, that he is the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church standing on the shoulders of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think the more people get to know Reverend Warnock, uh, these numbers will uh, will go up and he will I don't think he'll win outright. Um, but uh, but but I think he'll comfortably be uh, in a runoff. Yeah, just to quickly echo on what Fred and Tamar just highlighted. I mean, listen, you know, one of the good things about this show, Bill, is you want us to take your listeners kind of inside the campaigns. And I would tell you that the Democratic strategist here in the state, uh, a lot of people are torn. Some people, you know, in the Democratic Party, not some people, but all, we believe in democracy. We think that people should be able to run and no one should force them out. And that this is, you know, why they um, want to run for office, because they feel that they have things to add to the race. However, there's another side of the Democratic Party here in Georgia that are afraid that it's based on the level of fundraising and the spending and resources available to the other Democrats in this race, where roughly we have 21 candidates. Um, there is a lot of talk about whether or not we should make uh, a concerted effort to talk to the other candidates to try to rally around 
uh, Pastor Raphael Warnock. I think the key here is that the, the Warnock campaign cannot put that out. I think they got to let other people kind of talk about that. But ultimately, um, he's got to continue doing what he's doing, spending money in the right places, and more importantly, making sure that he, as Fred said, make sure he's the consensus Democrat that most people know. Baron Johnson, you get the last word in this segment. We got to get to a break. Uh, we'll be back with more on Political Rewind after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Tamara Hallerman, Theron Johnson, Brian Robinson, Fred Smith join us on Political Rewind uh, today. Um, So let's turn to this uh, question. I know that uh, you all spent a good amount of time on the show yesterday. Listeners got to hear a conversation about the um, legacy, the incredible life and career of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'm really pleased that the show was able to devote time to remembering her before turning to the uh, political side of all of this. I, all I will say is that Friday night, like many of you, um, uh, we were stunned by the news that Justice Ginsburg had died. Uh, we knew that she'd been sick for quite a while, uh, but she had fought and fought to stay on and uh, and maintain her position on the court. And, uh, and so it was especially sad uh, to lose her. But um, all that said, she this week will lie in state first at the Supreme Court and then become the first woman ever to lie in state at the United States Capitol, which, frankly, Tamara, I have to be honest with you, that's an extraordinary honor. And it does tell us what a remarkable person uh, the country thinks that she was. But the fact that she's the first, she'd be the first one to say that is horrendous, that it would take us till 2020 before we honor a woman in such a way, Tamara. Sure, but it, it goes to show the the position as kind of a liberal icon that, that she took up, especially over the last decade or so. So it it's a, doesn't surprise me at all that especially the, the first female speaker of the House would bestow that honor on, on such a liberal icon. Absolutely. All right. That said, let's talk about the politics right now. Um, uh, I, I want to read to you something that Ann Applebaum wrote on the Atlantic Magazine website the other day, because I think it's, it's important for our conversation. Um, we know at this point, I think pretty clearly, Fred, you can tell me if I'm wrong, Republicans now say, Lindsey Graham says, we have the votes. We can uh, put a nomination for a Supreme Court through we're not quite sure yet whether he means before the election they'll confirm or they'll have hearings before that. We don't know quite the timing yet, but he believes you have enough Republicans to uh, name a, a justice to replace Ginsburg. Isn't that what you're hearing as well? Yes, that's what that's his that's his position. I mean, there's still folks we haven't heard from, um, but uh, you know, I think the reason why people 
so many eyes are on Lindsey Graham was because of the emphatic nature of his statements four years ago, um, especially the words that are coming back to haunt him now, where he said, use my words against me. And so people are using his words against him. Um, I think that's why so much attention is on him in particular. But, you know, but there's still senators that I haven't heard from just yet. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any question. I think both Republicans and Democrats alike would agree that the hypocrisy is overwhelming uh, in terms of what Republicans said uh, four years ago and what they're saying now. That's a given. Uh, but Theron, I want you to respond first, and then, of course, I want Brian in on this. Here's what Ann Applebaum wrote in The Atlantic, just a little of it. I know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's empty Supreme Court seat has provoked an epic, long-awaited clash between Democrats and Republicans that the very principle of judicial independence hangs dangerously in the balance. But then she says it would be a mistake. Democrats should not spend the weeks between now and November talking solely about judges Mitch McConnell and the Supreme Court. Why? Fixating on the course or court organizes the electorate along two fronts of a culture war and forces people to make stark ideological choices. Instead of focusing voters on the president's failure to control COVID-19 or the consequent economic collapse, the culture war makes voters think only of their deepest tribal identity. So Theron, it's interesting that yesterday in Wisconsin, Joe Biden gave a speech in which he did not talk about the subject of a replacement for Ruth Bader Ginsburg at all. And the point being, and Applebaum and others say, focus on the virus, focus on the way the president has run the country for almost four years, not on this fight. What do you make of that? This is exactly, I think, the, the strategy that the Biden campaign is going to run with. I mean, if you really look at where we are right now with 42 days left to go in this presidential race, former Vice President Joe Biden is winning the race. However, we still got a long way to go. And so I think that, as Fred mentioned, we'll be able to point out the hypocrisy uh, from the Republicans on the statements that they made back in 2016 and 2000. You know, um, in 2018, you know, and even 2017, with all this process has been going on, but particularly when President Obama was trying to basically get his nominee uh, through the Senate. And so you'll have other groups that can do that. I think the Biden campaign has got to continue to focus on three things. One, the economy. Um, tell the American people, number two, how poorly this president has handled this deadly pandemic. And then three, I think he's got to continue to focus on health care. And we'll be able to weave in the importance of how the Supreme Court will play a pivotal role in who the next president is going to be. But I do think you'll see a lot of U.S. senators on the Democratic side point out the hypocrisy that we're seeing from these U.S. senators on the Republican side. Brian, what's interesting is, you know, conservatives have always had really a well-organized ability to support conservative nominees for the court. And that's already started. The Judicial Crisis Network just released a TV spot. Uh, we're going to listen to the audio of it because it's interesting to hear who they think the hypocrites are. Let's play it. You'll hear noise from extremists about the Supreme Court vacancy. Here are the facts. Justice Ginsburg was confirmed in 42 days. Only three senators voted against her. Justice O'Connor was confirmed in 33 days. It was unanimous. In eight out of 10 vacancies like this, the nominee was confirmed. Democrats are shamefully trying to change the facts. Tell the Senate, when a strong nominee is named, follow precedent. Confirm the judge. 
You know, Brian, it strikes me that to listen to that spot, uh, it's exactly the trap that Theron Johnson and a lot of Democrats are saying that they should avoid. Um, You can get sucked into that fight pretty easily, and there may be no productive result if you do. Brian? Yeah, I think that Americans would serve uh, themselves well if they didn't listen to anything any senator ever says about judicial <laughs> appointments or how the filibuster <laughs> should be used or what their principles are on it because it is so situational. And I don't understand. I, and, and I've watched this for 20 years. You know, I was on the Hill, Barron was on the Hill back in the 2000s during the Bush years. And, you know, I remember Harry Reid, then the Democratic leader, you know, making all of these principled statements about how this should work. And then Barack Obama becomes president, and he's arguing the exact opposite uh, of what his principles are. And look, this is a bipartisan um, sin. So this is something they both do. You look at the statements from Lindsey Graham saying he would never be for appointing somebody during a presidential year. I wouldn't say those kind of things, right? Don't, don't make such blanket arguments. Don't pretend that it's principle because Americans get that it's not. This is about politics, and both sides would approach it the exact same way. What Lindsey Graham said this week and what uh, uh, Senator Grassley of Iowa said as well is the Democrats would be doing the exact same thing if there was a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate. Of course they would. So let's just pretend, I mean, quit pretending that there's a principle involved with this. This is about raw political power, and that's how the system works, and that's okay. Okay, but so first of all, Fred, I think that you might be able to take issue with Brian's contention that what Barack Obama said, in fact, is the same kind of hypocrisy. What Obama said was, if Republicans established a standard of not uh, uh, approving a nominee in the year of a presidential election, they ought to be held to that standard right now. I'm not sure that's really an example of a flip-flop. But anyhow, Fred, weigh in on this. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, right, I mean, part, part of what has happened, right, is that 2016 uh, and the failure to act on a nomination um, that became vacant in February of that particular year, that itself was highly unusual. Um, and so, uh, and and so, I think holding senators to account for their particular principle um, that they articulated, I think, is, is certainly in bounds. Um, I also understand, though, that right, like you know, I, like everyone else, I come to this um, with probably with my own you know, biases and so forth. But but that's that's the way that I see it. I will say this from a political standpoint. Um, you know, I don't think that that will be a sufficient answer for some of the senators in this clo- in these close states, right? To say to be able to point to the other side and say, well, what about them? Um, I think for some voters, some degree of integrity and some degree of um, of, of character matters. Um, and uh, and so that you know, for for a senator to say who's running for re-election, oh, this is just about raw power. Uh, don't worry about what I said. I'll, I'll say whatever I need to say in the name of raw power. I'm not sure that will be a compelling answer. Um, and so I think there's kind of the meta narratives about how do we think about this in terms of Democrats, in terms of Republicans, in terms of the Republic. And then there's the sort of more specific um, uh, campaigns. Um, and then and, and I think that can play out differently. 
Democrats and the Biden campaign have a choice to make. And Brian framed it perfectly at the top of the show. They have to decide whether it's about turnout or whether it's about persuasion. If they want to juice turnout with their base, if they're really concerned about people staying home, young people, uh, black men, people of color who, who might not stay home, or sorry, who might not come out, then it makes sense to kind of fixate on this, this vacancy and talk about all of those giant explosive social issues that are at stake at the Supreme Court. But if they're fixated on winning over suburban women, those reluctant Republicans who might lean conservative in a normal year but absolutely hate Donald Trump, then fixating on this might be at their peril because Trump has shown that all his finalists for this position are, are women, and in general, their positions may be more in line with a lot of these suburban women who, or suburban women who might reluctantly um, go the other way. So they have a choice to make. Well, that's why Tamar is such a great reporter, because if you were interviewing me uh, on the record or off the record, I would, I would definitely agree with you that we have a choice to make. But I would say publicly that we can do both. Uh, I've been saying since day one, this is going to be a base plus election for Joe Biden. I believe that the base is going to be fired up. we got to continue to fire up the base. And I think the Biden campaign has shown that they did that during the primaries, and they'll do it um, with the 40-plus days left to go. However, there is the ability for us to persuade these college-educated, suburban, disaffected Republican women. And I do think you can do both, and that's why— I do think that what Senator Harris, who we didn't talk about, who will be able to really display uh, all the talent that she has, when she starts really getting going, I think she will help us with those women and also the base. But ultimately, if you're in the Trump-Pence campaign right now, you want to make it all about this Supreme Court nomination. Democrats have got to make it about that, but all of the different things that we've been talking about that really matters most to the American people. All right, we got to get a final break of the show out of the way, but when we come back, more on Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. There's a lot more that we can talk about in terms of the impact of this Supreme Court fight on especially down-ballot races, Senate race, uh, even House races, but... I would like to put that aside and, and take that up with our panel tomorrow, which includes Buddy Darden, Todd Ream, political science professor Karen Owen, because I don't want to miss a chance with Professor Fred Smith, one of the real experts on constitutional law, part of the show today, to kick off a conversation with us, uh, Fred, on the impact that either a four to four split on the court might have uh, or a five four conservative majority might have on the cases that are upcoming, uh, specifically most important, the uh, California v. Texas, which is the case brought by 20 attorneys general, including our own Chris Carr here in Georgia, that does question the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Fred, give us some give us some insight on how you think that. I mean, there are a lot of possible ways that could unfold. But talk to us a little bit about that case and, and where you think it stands, either with a 4-4 split or a new conservative majority. Sure. Right. So well, the first thing I'll say is we're assuming that the vote, that, that, that there would still be nine members of the court. Right. That is to say that um, if going forward, this is viewed as a naked power grab that's completely devoid of principle, um, then the question emerges whether or not um, that would create a sufficient um, opening in terms of political capital um, to, to, come, to add a number of justices, 
um, including perhaps um, where both the left and the right, where they have some kind of an equal number or some kind of power sharing arrangement. Or something. I mean, I know that sounds uh, uh, unbelievable, but this has been an unbelievable time. Uh, and, uh, and so that question is out there. But assuming that we go forward um, with uh, nine justices, um, so the Affordable Care Act case in particular, right, presumably the Chief Justice would vote as he did the first time um, uh, for institutional reasons and reasons of precedent, um, which, and, uh, but, you know, there could potentially be the votes. We don't know exactly where Kavanaugh or Gorsuch or where the new justice will be. Um, so there is the possibility, certainly, of the Affordable Care Act uh, being invalidated in its entirety. Um, that is to say, um, that the, the argument in that particular case is that it's no longer a tax because now there's no penalty associated with it. And because it's no longer a tax, it's no longer constitutional. Um, and because it's no longer constitutional, um, the, then the entire act should fall because if you take that piece out of it, then the law doesn't make any sense anymore. Um, and so that, you know, that's, that's a big that's a very reasonable possibility um, with a uh, with a six three split. Uh, Theron, so that's uh, an argument. There, there's something that it, that Democrats, whether you're Joe Biden at the top of the ticket or whether you're uh, John Ossoff or, or Raphael Warnock, Ed Tarver, whatever, um, if if you start arguing about the Supreme Court in terms of uh, your health care in the midst of a pandemic, that strikes me as a way you can address the Supreme Court fight in an entirely different way for uh, voters, yes? Yes, and I think you'll hear that um, from former Vice President Joe Biden in his upcoming debate with President Trump. You've also seen some some senators here locally talk about increasing the number of members of justice uh, that we can have on the Supreme Court. But I do think that if you look at where we were successful and how we won in 2018, health care was paramount. Uh, it was the preeminent issue that Lucy Metbath won on, along with gun control and gun safety. And I'm trying to pick little holes at my good friend Brian Robinson to engage on the Metbath handle race here. But <laughs> health care is going to really be uh, a preeminent issue that Democrats have got to own in talking to the American people about. Brian, that's a great point. I mean, it does, did not help in the last cycle uh, that Lucy McGath stressed health care and beat Karen Handel. So he makes and we get it. You are working with Karen Handel. So take your best shot. Well, Lucy doesn't have the cleanest hit on Karen. She's having to go up with ads that not just distort, but completely lie about Karen's record. You know, it says that she voted to defund the CDC. The bill that they cite is one that increased operational funding for the CDC. Karen has never been for simple repeal. She has always said, and kind of broken from the party to some degree, to say there must be a replacement there to to take uh, the place of Obamacare, particularly one that covers pre-existing conditions. I do not believe that the health care issue is why Lucy McBath won in 2018. It is because uh, Stacey Abrams won the district by 16,000 votes. That's why. Okay, but you would agree that if the Democrats can press the argument that they could, you could lose your health care if the wrong justice is named to the Supreme Court, that can be a potent argument against Republican candidates, yes? No. I, the, no. Okay. I, I mean, look, 
people know they'll be able to get same access to health care. Look, people have to go on the exchange. There are Republicans who go on the exchange, but nobody likes the exchange, right? It's super expensive. It's a ton of pain in the neck to deal with. People uh, much prefer to have their private health insurance they had before. Okay, Tamara, I think the polling shows that the Affordable Care Act has become more popular than it ever was before. But anyhow, go ahead. I have a question I want to ask Fred, actually. So I look at the top two names uh, to replace Ginsburg on the Supreme Court that the Trump administration has floated, Amy Coney Barrett and Barbara Lagoa. Um, And sure, stuff about their past could bubble up, but right now they seem like two solidly conservative candidates who I think a lot of Republicans and people who lean in that direction would love to have on the court. Um, and, And I think that could be a really great play for suburban women, potentially. And I'm wondering kind of what you know about those two judges and if they were added to the Supreme Court, kind of where they would fit in ideologically and tilt the balance in any way. Sure. Um, so I do think that the nature of this will change quite a bit once there is, in fact, a nominee, right? It's, it's one way to, to talk about this in the abstract is one thing to talk about it in the specifics is, the diff, is a different thing altogether. Um, Judge Lagoa, in particular, she was only nominated just last year, right? Uh, and so she's been confirmed very recently. Uh, a lot of folks on our record is having voted for her. Um, and so she's kind of, she's been through the paces and she doesn't have a lot of votes as an 11th Circuit judge yet. Um, she also uh, is Cuban American. Uh, she's from Florida. Uh, and so, uh, and so I think all of that would certainly play um, a role in how people uh, view them. Um, uh, we do know that the other candidate is, um, is a, is a, her background is um, as a religious conservative, and I think she would give a lot more comfort to people who want to overturn Roe versus Wade than Judge Lagoa, for whom we don't really know as much about where she stands on that particular issue. Um, all right. And and by the way, the, her Catholic, her strong, strong Catholic beliefs could be a really interesting trap that Democrats could fall into, Brian, during uh, hearings. Uh, Diane Feinstein already made that mistake in qu- questioning her uh, for her, uh, her lower court appointment, essentially talking about her as something of a cultist in terms of her views about Catholicism. That's something that the Democrats are going to have to avoid if she's the, the selection. Yeah. Senator Feinstein said the dogma lives loudly within you or strongly yeah. within you, something like that. It sounded like a scene from uh, that something Yoda might say uh, while training Luke Skywalker and certainly made her look far out of touch with the vast majority of Americans who are people of faith. And of course, the vast majority of them are, in fact, Christians and a large number of those are Catholics. So it would be something that would make Democrats look extreme. It would make them look other, you know, which is something somebody not like me, somebody who doesn't share my values. And that would be something Democrats better game plan for, because you know, even if the senators stay on on message, some of the third party groups will not. And that will hurt Democrats in this election. All right. Theron Johnson, the Democrat, got the the last word on segment one. Brian Robinson, the Republican, gets it on the end of the show. Can't be fairer than that. Tamar Hallerman, Theron Johnson. Theron, get a nap in, please. We don't want you to be so tired all the time with your baby, Brian, Fred Smith. We really, such a great conversation today. Thank you 
very much. We're, of course, back again tomorrow. We'll continue talking about uh, the races leading up to uh, the November election. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Do me a favor. Please take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and yes, get a flu shot, for goodness sake. We'll see you all tomorrow. Bye-bye.